Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Veslega, Director of the Section of the Clinical Specialists and Scientists section here at ASHP, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2020 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Hello, I'm Joe Plott, and I'm one of the PGY2 emergency medicine residents at The Ohio State University. My presentation today will be covering the use of femepazole in acetaminophen overdoses. The objective of this presentation is to define the use of femepazole in acetaminophen overdoses. Acetaminophen overdoses are one of the leading causes of drug-induced liver failure and one of the most common overdoses we see in the emergency department. As you can see here, there are three main pathways in which acetaminophen is metabolized. Glucuronidation and sulfation are the primary pathways for acetaminophen metabolism. The cytochrome P450 system, primarily CYP2E1, is a minor pathway for metabolism and accounts for around 5 to 10% of overall metabolism in therapeutic ingestions of acetaminophen. Acetaminophen that is metabolized through the CYP450 system becomes NAPP. Glutathione can normally detoxify NAPP and prevent hepatotoxicity. However, with large ingestions of acetaminophen, glucuronidation and sulfation pathways become saturated. This causes the CYP450 system to account for a larger portion of metabolism, thus leading to excess NAPP. When excess NAPP is formed, glutathione stores become depleted and hepatotoxicity can occur. Pomepazole is a novel therapy proposed for the treatment of acetaminophen overdoses. Pomepazole is a potent CYP2E1 inhibitor. This inhibits acetaminophen's metabolism into NAPK and the resultant hepatotoxic effects. This is in contrast to the mechanism of N-acetylcysteine, also known as NAC, which has traditionally been used for acetaminophen overdoses. NAC primarily works as a glutathione precursor and substitute to reduce hepatotoxicity. NAC is typically a very effective treatment for acetaminophen ingestions, but increased rates of acute liver injury and hepatotoxicity can occur if NAC is not started within eight hours of ingestion or if a massive amount of acetaminophen is ingested. Fomepazole has traditionally been used in methanol and ethylene glycol ingestions to reduce toxicity through the inhibition of alcohol dehydrogenase. However, the mechanism in acetaminophen ingestions is due to its inhibition of CYP2E1, which inhibits NAPK formation. Due to its use in toxic alcohol ingestions, we have quite a bit of safety data available for this drug. Overall, pomepazole has a favorable adverse event profile, and this would not limit its proposed use in acetaminophen overdoses. Dosing has not been established in acetaminophen overdoses, and two main dosing strategies have been used in reports. Most reports use the dosing strategy of pomepazole 50 mg per kilogram IV administered once with no subsequent doses. Some other reports have used maintenance doses of 10 mg per kilogram IV every 12 hours following the initial dose of 15 mg per kilogram. There is currently a lack of robust clinical experience using femepsil and acetaminophen ingestions. In vitro studies of human hepatocytes had displayed reduced hepatotoxicity when exposed to acetaminophen and femepsil concurrently, as compared to hepatocytes just exposed to acetaminophen. A study in rats observed the administration of femepsil compared to placebo after administering toxic dose of acetaminophen to the rats. The rats that received placebo developed liver necrosis and had elevations in ALC levels, while the rats receiving phenosol had almost no signs of acetaminophen toxicity. A limited number of case reports and case series currently exist as a the use of phenosol in humans. 
These reports that do show promising results due to the low rates of hepatotoxicity following the administration of both NAC and Pimepazole. However, these results are hard to interpret due to the concurrent administration of NAC, which is itself an effective treatment of acetaminophen overdoses. Two case reports include patients with acetaminophen levels greater than 800 micrograms per milliliter treated with triple therapy, including hemodialysis, Pimepazole, and NAC. Despite these severely elevated acetaminophen levels on presentation, these patients were discharged within eight days with no further abnormalities noted after discharge. Overall, while the data is limited, promising results for the use of Femepsil have been displayed in animals, in vitro, and in humans. In summary, Femepsil is a novel therapy for acetaminophen overdoses due to its reduction of NAPQ formation through the inhibition of CYP281. Little clinical experience currently exists for this indication, but current reports appear promising. And finally, the use of Femepsil, NAC, and hemodialysis has been used with positive results in massive acetaminophen ingestions. Hello, my name is Tiffany Vu, and I'm an emergency medicine clinical pharmacist at MedStar Union Memorial Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. My presentation today is titled, Does My Face Look Puffy? The Role of Tranexamic Acid in Angioedema. The objective of this presentation is to identify scenarios in which administration of tranexamic acid may be utilized for angioedema. Tranexamic acid, which will be referred to from this point on in the presentation as TXA, has been utilized off-label for several decades. There is limited data regarding efficacy, as most literature consists of case reports, case series, or are retrospective in nature. Of the available literature, TXA use has been noted in hereditary angioneurotic edema, non-hereditary angioedema, menstruation-related angioedema, non-histaminergic angioedema, and bradykinin-induced angioedema. TXA has shown improvement in patients with hereditary angioedema, idiopathic angioedema, and bradykinin-induced angioedema. The primary focus of this clinical pearl will be on TXA's role in bradykinin-induced angioedema. As overwhelming and busy as this figure may seem, it shows the role of TXA as well as other therapies to treat angioedema in their respective pathways. TXA inhibits the conversion of plasminogen into plasmin, which plays a crucial role in the amplification of calocrine activation. Mechanistically, it should be beneficial in treating bradykinin-induced angioedema by working upstream and decreasing the potentiation and overactivation of bradykinin. TXA can be considered when there's known use of an ACE inhibitor. Generally, if there's minimum swelling and mild symptoms, the patient should be observed with the offending agent discontinued. However, if there's progression of swelling with tongue and lip edema, treatment with TXA can be considered. It is important to note that the availability of a C1 inhibitor or a cadaban may be a factor as it is not stocked at some sites and the thawing of FFP may take up to 45 minutes. Therefore, TXA will provide a bridge to acquiring FFP, a C1 inhibitor, or icadaban. As always, if the airway is compromised, the primary focus should be to protect the airway through intubation. Overall, TXA is inexpensive and readily available in most emergency departments. It is relatively safe and may provide a bridge to other therapies, such as FFP, Icatabant, or a C1 inhibitor. Its use is controversial in the setting of angioedema with data that is limited to case reports, case series, and retrospective reviews. It has also been noted that there is longer time to symptom relief when using TXA in comparison to the therapies previously mentioned. 
Lastly, it is contraindicated in patients with hemophilia. In the setting of angioedema, TXA is dosed as a 1 gram IV slow push over 10 minutes with repeat dosing every 4 hours as needed, all while monitoring for symptom resolution, especially if the airway is involved. Adverse effects include thrombosis, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, vertigo, muscle cramps, hypotension, dizziness, and fatigue. In conclusion, TXA may be used in bradykinin-induced angioedema. It is administered as a 1-gram IV slow push over 10 minutes. It is an inexpensive option that disrupts bradykinin generation and is quick to acquire and administer while waiting for FFP to thaw and or procurement of alternative agents such as Icatabant or a C1 inhibitor. Hello everyone, my name is Kyle Stupka and I'm one of the PGY2 Emergency Medicine Pharmacy Residents at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. Today, I will be presenting over inhaled therapies for massive pulmonary embolism. The objective of my presentation is to describe the utility of inhaled nitroglycerin or milrinone as rescue therapies for massive pulmonary embolism. PEs are classified based on severity into three categories, non-massive, submassive, and massive. In patients with massive PE, they will be hemodynamically unstable due to RV dysfunction, may be vasopressor-dependent, and are at risk of impending arrest. Mortality associated with massive PE is due to hemodynamic collapse rather than hypoxemia. As a result of the obstruction, RV afterload is increased, leading to RV dilation. This causes increased RV oxygen demand and ischemia. Eventually, both the right side and left side of the heart will fail, leading to decreased cardiac output and systemic perfusion, ultimately contributing to obstructive shock and death. Management of the crashing PE patient consists of thrombolytic therapy as soon as possible. Volume loading the patient may overdistend the right ventricle and further contribute to cardiac collapse, so this should be avoided. Ultimately, we want to increase systemic blood pressure while decreasing pulmonary vascular resistance, but how can we achieve both of these seemingly contradicting goals? Historically, inhaled nitric oxide or epoprostenol have been used to decrease pulmonary vascular resistance and improve RV function via the mechanisms outlined on this slide. Essentially, they cause pulmonary vasodilation, leading to reduced RV afterload. Although they work locally, they're expensive, complex to administer, and take time to get to the patient. So how can we have the same effects as these agents without the hassle of getting everything ready for administration when time is of the essence? One option is inhaled nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is metabolized to nitric oxide, virtually giving it the same mechanism of vasodilation. Another option is inhaled milrinone. Milrinone inhibits PDE3 in the pulmonary smooth muscle cells. This leads to an increase in cyclic AMP, which in turn will contribute to decreased vascular tone. Data regarding this concept is extrapolated from patients undergoing mitral valve surgery or in patients with congenital heart disease and pulmonary arterial hypertension. As you can see, with inhaled nitroglycerin at doses of 2.5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, Markers of pulmonary vascular resistance were reduced, with little to no effect on systemic hemodynamic markers. In studies that included milrinone, with a similar population and dose, roughly 5 milligrams over 10 to 15 minutes, the results were similar, with minimal systemic effects and improvements in pulmonary vascular resistance. Based on these studies, a reasonable dosing strategy is 5 milligrams nebulized over 10 to 15 minutes. The duration of action is still relatively short, so you may need to repeat nebulizer treatments or administer continuously. 
it's recommended to use more concentrated solutions such as 5 milligrams per milliliter of nitroglycerin or 1 milligram per milliliter of milrenone. In the case of nitroglycerin, you'll need to dilute the solution further with normal saline to a final volume of 5 to 6 milliliters. As you can see from these pictures, the administration of nitroglycerin or milrenone is simple. All you need is a standard nebulizer and the medication. These supplies should be readily available to use in the emergency department. So when using these agents, you maintain localized effects on the pulmonary vasculature. They're relatively inexpensive and more readily available in the emergency department, making them viable options for the crashing PE patient while bridging to more definitive therapy. In summary, PE mortality is caused by RV failure and not hypoxemia. Inhaled pulmonary vasodilators help to reduce pulmonary vascular resistance without decreasing systemic blood pressure. However, historically used nitric oxide and epoprosinol may not always be readily available for immediate administration. Because of this, it may be worthwhile to utilize inhaled nitroglycerin or milrenone as salvage therapy options in the crashing PE patient. Hello, my name is Jimmy Krenz, and I'm a current PGY2 in emergency medicine pharmacy at Massachusetts General Hospital. Today, I'll be answering some common questions about hydroxychloroquine overdose. In today's pearl, we will review unique treatment considerations for the management of acute hydroxychloroquine overdose. Let's start by answering the question, what is hydroxychloroquine? Hydroxychloroquine is a 4-aminoquinolone that is rapidly and completely absorbed with a slow redistribution phase. It was originally designed as an antimalarial agent, and we saw increased use at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. While hydroxychloroquine is no longer recommended for COVID-19 treatment, it is presently used for the treatment of malaria as well as rheumatologic conditions. Now let's discuss the mechanisms of acute hydroxychloroquine toxicity. During an acute ingestion, hydroxychloroquine can have prominent effects on several physiologic processes within the human body. Hydroxychloroquine causes sodium channel blockade, which can manifest as a widened QRS complex. It is also a potent potassium channel blocker and can cause intracellular potassium shifts, leading to a prolonged QTC and may potentiate life-threatening dysrhythmias. Hydroxychloroquine acts on the central nervous system and can cause toxicity such as altered mental status. It may also potentiate seizures and more serious ingestions. In severe cases, hydroxychloroquine overdose can lead to rapid cardiorespiratory collapse. To summarize, the most serious mechanisms of hydroxychloroquine overdose are arrhythmias, central nervous system toxicity, and cardiorespiratory collapse in serious cases. Now that we've reviewed mechanisms of acute hydroxychloroquine toxicity, let's discuss how this condition should be treated. There are several pharmacologic treatment options that can be utilized in an acute hydroxychloroquine overdose. Diazepam can be used to treat and prevent seizures, arrhythmias, and other toxicities. Diazepam is a benzodiazepine that agonizes GABA channels and is currently the only benzodiazepine that has been extensively studied for hydroxychloroquine overdose. Diazepam is also unique in that it possesses activity at sodium channels. Adverse events to be mindful of are hypotension, which can be managed with vasopressors, or CNS depression, which can be managed with supportive care and may require intubation. It is important to be mindful of these adverse events due to the high doses of diazepam recommended for hydroxychloroquine overdose. The initial dose of diazepam is 2 mg per kilogram administered over 30 minutes. This initial administration can be facilitated by diluting diazepam in normal saline up to a concentration of 1 mg of diazepam to 4 ml of saline. This admixture is stable for 6 to 8 hours. After the initial dose, patients should receive 1 to 2 mg per kilogram per day for the next 2 to 4 days. 
Because of the short stability of mixing diazepam and saline, this total daily dose can be divided and administered via an IV push every four hours rather than as a continuous infusion. For patients requiring chemodynamic support, high-dose epinephrine is the vasopressor of choice in hydroxychloroquine overdose, as this pressor is the most extensively studied in this setting. The initial dose is 0.25 micrograms per kilogram per minute and should be titrated to maintain a systolic blood pressure of greater than 100 millimeters of mercury. It's important to keep in mind that epinephrine may potentiate hypokalemia due to its beta agonism effects. For patients experiencing a prolonged QRS complex caused by hydroxychloroquine sodium channel blockade, sodium bicarbonate may be used. Because sodium bicarbonate may worsen hypokalemia, hypertonic saline is an alternative in this setting. Patients presenting with acute hydroxychloroquine ingestion may exhibit hypokalemia due to intracellular shifts of potassium caused by hydroxychloroquine or as a side effect of therapies such as high-dose epinephrine and sodium bicarbonate. Potassium repletion is important as serum potassium concentrations of less than 3 have been associated with mortality in hydroxychloroquine overdose. Consider aggressive repletion of potassium and magnesium for patients who present with life-threatening arrhythmias. It's also important to monitor for rebound serum potassium increases as hydroxychloroquine toxicity resolves. Finally, intralipid emulsion therapy may be considered as last line for patients with impending cardiac arrest after previous therapies have failed. Consider the need for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation as the administration of lipid emulsion therapy may interfere with the ECMO circuit. The objective for this presentation is to describe the role of flumazenil and benzodiazepine overdose. Benzodiazepines enhance the effects of GABA and increase the frequency of GABA-gated chloride openings. They specifically act on the alpha subunit, creating the sedative and anxiolytic effects. Flumazenil binds to the extracellular surface of the alpha subunit, fully displacing the benzodiazepine molecule and inhibiting the binding of benzodiazepines. Flumazenil can be dosed on a standard approach, which is 0.2 milligrams IV until you reach 1 milligram, or cautiously, which is 0.1 milligrams IV until 1 milligram or the effect has been achieved. It can take 1 to 2 minutes before seeing these effects, and the duration is dependent on dose and elimination of the specific benzodiazepine trying to be reversed. Though flumazenil sounds like a great drug to be used for reversing a benzodiazepine overdose, one big caveat is that it can actually increase a patient's risk of having a seizure, especially based off of history of previous seizures, or if they currently take benzodiazepines at home to prevent them from having a seizure. In 2016, Peninga and colleagues assessed the risk of serious adverse events associated with flumazenil in patients with impaired consciousness from suspected or known benzodiazepine overdose. This is a meta-analysis examining 13 trials and 994 randomized patients who either received placebo or flumazenil and were admitted in the ED. This study looked at adverse events, serious adverse events, and mortality. Flumazenil was associated with statistically significant higher adverse events of 27.7% compared to 9.6%, with most common being agitation and gastrointestinal symptoms, as well as serious adverse events for flumazenil being 2.4% compared to placebo of 0.4%, with most common being superventricular arrhythmias and convulsions. 
No patients died during the meta-analysis. Flumazenil should be considered in patients with a benzodiazepine overdose in-house where only known ingestion of benzodiazepines occurred or benzodiazepine-naive patients. Other considerations should be during accidental overdose in pediatric populations, as well if a patient is experiencing a paradoxical effect, such as agitation or violent behavior, which could require a patient to be in restraints. It's important to not use flumazenil when we have a patient with an unknown or a mixed overdose. If they have a known benzodiazepine tolerance or they take benzodiazepines at home regularly, have a history of a seizure disorder, prolonged QRS, or a dysrhythmia. If a patient is experiencing a seizure post-flumazenil treatment, consider using a benzodiazepine to counteract the flumazenil with the binding of GABA, intubation and using propofol for seizure treatment, or using a barbiturate such as phenobarbital to break the seizure. Unless it is known to be a pure benzodiazepine toxicity, such as an overdose in-house, consider to not use flumazenil. Do not use flumazenil if a patient has a known benzodiazepine tolerance, history of seizures, or it's a mixed or unknown overdose. Consider the use of supportive care as a primary treatment or intubation if there's a seizure concern when using flumazenil. Thanks so much for listening today. Be sure to follow us at DaysHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2020 ASHP Midyear Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Vexlega from ASHP Official, and thank you for all that you do for our patients. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.